and remaining guiltily silent on the doom awaiting the wicked. As surely as Hazael slew Ben-Hadad, the unfaithful preachers of our day are murdering souls. As Hazael became king, so the most faithless now occupy the seats of power in Christendom. Chapter 29 His Young Deputy We regard the incident recorded in 2 Kings 9, 1-10 as relating to the mission of Elisha and in order to a better understanding of the same would refer the hearer back to the first two chapters of this series. There we pointed out that the missions of Elijah and Elisha formed two parts of one whole, much the same as did those entrusted to Moses and Joshua. While there was indeed a striking difference between what was accomplished through and by Moses and the one who succeeded him, and while their respective missions may be considered separately, yet in the wider view the latter should be regarded primarily as the complement of the former. Such was also the case with Elijah and Elisha. The analogy between Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha is not perfect in every detail, yet there is sufficient agreement in the broad outline as to enable us to perceive more clearly the relation which the second sustained to the first in each of those two prayers. By such perception, not a little light is cast upon the ministries of those we are not more especially concerned with. The very similarity of their names intimates a more than ordinary connection between them. According to that important rule of interpretation, the very first mention of Elisha in the scriptures clearly defines his relation unto his predecessor. Unto Elijah the Lord said, Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. 1 Kings 19.16 Those words signify something more than he was to be his successor in the prophetic office. Elisha was to take Elijah's place as his accredited representative. This is confirmed by the fact that when he found Elisha, Elijah cast his mantle upon him, verse 19, which denotes the closest possible identification between them. In perfect accord with that is the reply Elisha made when, later, he was asked by the one whose place he was to take, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken, not from Israel, but from thee. Namely, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Second Kings 2, 9, which request was granted. Elisha then was far more than the historical successor of Elijah. He was appointed and anointed to be his representative. 
we might almost say his ambassador. Elisha was the man called by God to take Elijah's place before Israel. Though Elijah had left this scene and gone on high, yet his ministry was not to cease. True, he was no longer here in person, yet he was so in spirit. The starting point of Elijah's ministry was the supernatural rapture of his master and that the one was to carry on the work of the other was symbolically intimated by his initial act. For his first miracle was an exact duplication of the last one wrought by his predecessor, namely the smiting and opening up of the waters of Jordan so that he crossed over dry shod. The instrument used being Elijah's own mantle, Second Kings 2.14. The immediate sequel supplies further evidence in proof of what we have just pointed out. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Verse 15 In Second Kings 2 we read of the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel, verse 3, and in verse 5 we are also told of the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho, the latter numbering more than 50, verse 17. By that expression, a Hebrewism, we understand that these young men had been converted under the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, for the latter had accompanied the former for some years previous to his rapture, and who were organized into schools. As we saw in an earlier chapter, there was yet another school of the Medgilgal, chapter 4, verse 38, and from their sitting before him, compared Deuteronomy 33, 3, Luke 2, 46, and 10, 39, it is evident that Elisha devoted much of his time to their instruction and edification. Their owning him as thou man of God, chapter 4, 40, and a master, 6, Five reveals plainly enough the relation which he sustained unto them, as does also their appeal to him for the enlarging of their living quarters. Chapter 6, verse 1 He acted then as their rector or superintendent, and gained both their respect and their affection. In the course of our studies, we have seen how Elisha wrought more than one miracle for the benefit of these students. Thus, through his intervention on her behalf, he enabled the widow of one of the children of the prophets, who had appealed to him in her dire extremity, to pay off her debt and save her two sons from being made bondmen to her debtor. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Next he delivered a whole company of them from being poisoned when there was death in the pot, 
which they were about to partake of. Chapter 4, 38-41 Then he rescued the head of the axe borrowed by another of them. 6, 4-7 Not only were the schools of the sons of the prophets which were established by the Tishbite continued throughout the life of his successor, but in the previous instances we see how that Elisha acted toward them as Elijah would have done had he remained among them, using his extraordinary powers on their behalf as need arose and occasion required. Let us now point out the relevancy of this somewhat lengthy preface to the incident we are now to contemplate. Our narrative opens by saying, And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, and take this box of oil in thine hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when thou comest, thither, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Dimshai, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren, and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil, and pour it on his head, and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry now. 2 Kings 9, 1-3 That can only be rightly apprehended in the light of what has just been pointed out. If we turn back to 1 Kings 19, 15 and 16, it will be found that Elijah received the following commission. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Concerning the anointing of Hazael, Scripture is silent. That of Elisha was accomplished when Elijah cast his mantle upon him. Verse 19 At first sight, the long delay in the anointing of Jehu seems to present a difficulty. But if we take note of the particular work appointed for him to perform and compare an earlier passage the difficulty is at once removed. Jehu was to be the Lord's instrument of executing his vengeance on the wicked house of Ahab, a solemn announcement of which was made to that apostate monarch by Elijah in 1 Kings 21, 21-24, and Jehu's agency in connection therewith was intimated in 1 Kings 19.17. Upon hearing that dreadful announcement from the lips of the Lord's messenger, we are told that Ahab rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. 1 Kings 21.27 
because of that external humbling of himself before Jehovah, he declared unto the prophet, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Verse 29 Since that divine decision was communicated to Elijah personally, we infer that it was tantamount to a bidding him defer the anointing of Jehu, a respite having been granted unto Ahab, the commissioning of the one who was to execute the judgment was also postponed. For the same reason, we conclude that since the time for the anointing of Jehu had not arrived before Elijah left this earth, that he transferred this particular duty to his successor, to the one who became prophet in his room, as the Lord Jesus is said to have baptized those who were immersed by his disciples acting under his authority. John 4, 1 and 2. But now the question arises, why did not Elisha personally perform the task assigned him by the one whose representative he was? Why entrust it to a deputy? The principal reason given by Matthew Henry and adopted by Thomas Scott is that it was too dangerous a task for Elisha to undertake, and therefore it was not fit that he should expose himself. That being so well known, he had been promptly recognized, and therefore he selected one who was more likely to escape observation. But such an explanation by no means commends itself to us for it is entirely out of accord with everything else recorded of Elisha, the one who had spoken so boldly to King Jehoram, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, who was not afraid to give offense unto the mighty Naaman, 5, 9 to 11, who had calmly sat in the house when the king had sworn he should be slain that day, 6, 31, and 32, and who possessed such power from God as to be able to smite with blindness those who sought to take him captive. 618 was hardly the one to shrink from an unpleasant task and invite another to face peril in his stead. Since the scriptures do not implicitly reveal to us the grounds on which Elisha here acted, none may attempt to dogmatically define the same. The most any writer can do is to form his own judgment from what is revealed, state his opinion, and submit it to the readers. Personally, we prefer to interpret Elisha's action on this occasion in the light of the particular stage which had now been reached in his career. Nothing more is recorded about him after this incident save what immediately preceded his death. It appears then that for some reason unknown to us, for he lived many years afterward, that he was about to retire from the stage of public action and therefore that he would prepare the sons of the prophets and perhaps this one more particularly 
to take a more prominent part in the public life of Israel and consequently was placing more responsibility upon them. It is not to be lost sight of that it was also an important and distinguishing mission this young man was now entrusted with and that a high honor was conferred upon him. And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil in thine hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Second Kings 9 verse 1 Elisha is not here designated the man of God because no miracle was involved in what follows. Only here is he turned Elisha the prophet, and only in 1 Kings 18.36 was his predecessor called Elijah the prophet. It intimated the identification of one with the other. Elisha's calling one of the children of the prophets to him manifests the relation which he sustained unto them, namely, as one having authority over them. Compare our article on chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In the light of what was pointed out in the preceding, we may see in Elisha's action an example which elderly ministers of the gospel may well emulate. Endeavoring to promote the training of their young brethren, seeking to equip them for more important duties after they will have left the scene on the principle which Paul acted upon. The things which thou hast learned of me, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Second Timothy 2, verse 2 And when thou comest thither, look out there, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai, and go in and Make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him into an inner chamber. Verse 2 Here we behold another example of the extraordinary powers possessed by Elisha. He knew where Jehu was to be found, that he would not be alone, the precise company he would be in, that he would be seated and yet not in the inner chamber. But it was a trying ordeal to which he now subjected his deputy and a solemn errand on which he sent it. The wicked Jehoram, also called Joram, was still on the throne and at that time sojourning in Ramoth Gilead, where he was recovering from the wounds which the Syrians had given him in the recent battle at Ramah. Chapter 8, verse 29. With him was the son of the king of Judah, who was visiting him in his sickness, and with him too were other members of the reigning house. The mission entrusted to the young prophet involved his entry into the royal quarters, his peremptory ordering one of the princes to accompany him to a private chamber, and then discharging the purpose for which he had come. That purpose was not only to anoint and make him king, but to deliver an announcement which would, to most temperaments, 
be very unpleasant. But the minister of God, be he young or old, is not free to pick and choose either his sphere of labor or the message he is to deliver. No, being but a servant, he is subject only to the will of his master, and therefore any self-seeking or self-pleasing is nothing else than a species of insubordination. Implicit obedience to the Lord, no matter what it may involve or cost him in this life, is what is required of him, and only by rendering such obedience will he be rewarded in the next life by hearing from the lips of Christ himself that commendation, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. O oh, that each young minister of Christ who hears this may be constrained to earnestly seek enabling grace that he may live and act now with the day to come before him. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. 2 Kings 9, 3 The young prophet was to make it unmistakably clear that he was acting in no private capacity, nor even as an agent of Elisha, but under the immediate authority of Jehovah himself. It is most important that the minister of Christ should similarly conduct himself. He is to make it evident that he is commissioned by heaven, not delivering a message of his own devising, nor acting as the agent of his denomination. Only thus is God honored, and only thus will his servant preserve his true dignity and speak with divine authority. When he has fulfilled his charge, then let him tarry not, that is, hang around in order to listen to the compliments of his hearers. Mark, that kingship is of divine appointment and institution. Compare Proverbs 8.15 And therefore are God's people bidden to honor the king. 1 Peter 2.17 It is one of the marks of an apostate and degenerate age when dominion is despised and dignities are evil spoken of. Jude 8 So the young man, even the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. Verse 4 Observe how the Holy Spirit has emphasized his youth. Often the babe in Christ is more pliable and responsive than an older Christian. Note that there is nothing to show he asked for an easier task, objected to this one on the score of his youth, nor that he felt unworthy for such a mission, which is more often the language of pride than of humility, for none is worthy to be commissioned of the Almighty. It is entirely a matter of sovereign grace and in no wise one of personal merit that anyone is called to the ministry. Said the Apostle Paul, 
I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Though he had once added, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3, 7 and 8 He referred to a twofold grace in calling and equipping him. When God calls one to his service, he also furnishes him, illustrated in this incident by the box of oil put into the young prophet's hand. And when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting, and he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all of us? And he said, To thee, O captain. And he arose and went into the house. Second Kings 9, 5 and 6 We regard the behold as having a threefold force. First, as calling attention to the accuracy of Elijah's indirect but obvious prediction in verse 2. Second, as emphasizing the severity of the ordeal which then confronted the young prophet. Jehu, being surrounded by companions of note and the likelihood that he would resent such an intrusion. Third, in view of what follows, as intimating the gracious hand of God so ordering things that Jehu promptly and unmurmuringly complied with the prophet's order, thus making it much easier for him. In that, we may see how God ever delights to honor those who honor him and show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. That which is recorded in verses 7 to 10 was evidently included in the commission which the young man had received from the Lord through Elisha and which he now faithfully discharged. The fact that the prophet here made such an announcement appears to supply strong confirmation of what was pointed out in our opening, namely, that this deputy of Elisha was acting in the stead of Elijah or as his representative. For if it be compared with 1 Kings 21, 21-24, it will be found that it is practically an echo of the Tishbite's own words to Ahab. In the charge here given to Jehu, we are shown how he was to be God's battle axe, Jeremiah 51.20, or sword of justice. Man might see in Jehu's conduct, see remainder of 2 Kings 9, nothing more than the ferocity of a human fiend. But in these verses, we are taken behind the scenes, as it were, and shown how he was appointed to be the executioner of God's judgments. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. Habakkuk 2, 3 True alike, whether the vision of prophecy foretells divine mercy or wrath, 
as the wicked house of Ahab was to discover. And he opened the door and fled. Verse 10 This was most praiseworthy and should be duly taken to heart by us. The servant of God is not free to please himself at any point, but must carry out the orders he has received to the last letter of them. Most probably, had this young man lingered, Jehu, after receiving such a high favor at his hands, had evidenced his appreciation by bestowing some reward upon him, or at least feasted him at his royal table. But Elisha had bidden him open the door as soon as he had performed his errand and flee and tarry not. Verse 3 And here we see his implicit obedience to his master. Oh, that we may in all things render unqualified compliance with our master's will. It is not without significance that in the very next verse, the young prophet is scornfully referred to as this mad fellow. Verse 11, by one of the servants of the king, for the unregenerate are quite incapable of assessing at their true value the motives which prompt the faithful minister of Christ, and judging him by their own standards, regard him as crazy. But what is the contempt and ridicule of the world if we have the approbation of the Lord? Nothing, and less than nothing, especially if we expect it as we should do. Chapter 30 His Death We have no means of ascertaining the exact age of Elisha when he was overtaken by his fatal sickness, for we know not how old he was when called to the prophetic office, though from the analogy of Scripture he would probably be at least thirty at that time, nor does there appear any way of discovering how long a period he accompanied and ministered to Elijah before his rapture. Some writers think it was upwards of ten years. But if we turtle up the years which the various kings reigned over Israel, who were all outlived by our prophet, beginning with Ahab, it will be seen that he was a very old man. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.